Good day, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Homeland Security's podcast, Structurally Sound. My name is Michael Asplund. I'm the executive director here at the Institute. And today, uh, for this episode, we're going to be talking uh, about an event that occurred a couple days ago. We're actually recording this uh, two days after the event. We hosted the first ever Thought Leaders Conference that replaced uh, a series of events we had to frame up and shape how the organization was going to run. We had stakeholders come together uh, and we did that to get us up and running. And if you've had the opportunity to look at our website, www.ihsonline.org, you can see all of the stuff that we've put together from education resources, research papers, and opportunities to collaborate with us. But it was time to... um, do something different, to take the next step in the evolution of our institute. And the goal of this was to understand what happens if we get into a situation with uh, other state actors that are not necessarily going to war with us, but maybe doing things to disrupt uh, our way of life uh, by disrupting critical infrastructure at all levels. So, I've got the uh, two folks in the in the room with me today, uh, as as well as my co-host Grant Threet and our man on the street, Marcus Funk, who is our producer, uh, to uh, talk about the events, uh, the event on Wednesday, and um, have an opportunity to do some dialogue. Now we did some pre, as you uh, any good podcaster is going to do. We want to make sure that we know what we're talking about, so we do have our 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 pre-identified topics. But as if you've listened to um, uh, po- episode zero, episode one, you know that we're not constrained by those things. And I had to shut down the pre-dialogue dialogue because all of a sudden things started to get um, interesting. And I said, "Hold that." Hold that energy till we can uh, start recording. So, Grant, did you want to uh, say hello? Sure. Yeah. No. It's uh, it's good to be here with everybody in podcast land, and uh, just excited to unpack this thought leaders conference um, here as we, as we get going. So let's start with introducing our two guests today. I've got uh, Scott McHugh and Nadav Marag, and I'm not even going to try. I'm going to let you guys go. So uh, hold on. I'm going to flip a coin. And it's heads. Looks like uh, Scott gets to go first. Scott, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Mike. I really appreciate the opportunity to participate. Tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you did, what cool things you've done in your life. I don't know that I've actually done anything cool, but I've been around for a long time now. Uh, I was 22 years with the federal government as an intelligence officer, almost all of that overseas, 14 of my 22 years overseas and retired in 1998, and I've been chief security officer since then, first at uh, Philip Morris and then for uh, Walmart, uh, Walmart International, and then for Lyondell Bazell, a chemical company. So it's sort of surprising to me that I've actually been in the private sector for longer than I was in the the government at this point in my career. And he has, uh, he is, um, he's done some cool stuff that he, and I'm going to say it's cool stuff and I'm not going to tell any stories, I promise. 
but uh, it's definitely to have Scott along to provide that. You know, when we talk about critical infrastructure, it's both from a government perspective, but private industry, obviously. And what Scott has brought to the table uh, has been a compliment to me in terms of understanding how does private industry operate and how do they interact with government? Because that's been my background. And also sitting uh, with me today is Dr. Nadav Barag. He is the chair of the Security Studies Department here at Sam Houston State. And just like uh, Scott, he also has done some cool things. So, Nadav, welcome to the program and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Mike. Um, so in my case, um, uh, my background and experience is more um, overseas. Uh, I was a uh, captain in the Israel Defense Forces and then served as a senior director at the Israeli National Security Council, where my job was to be part of a group of 10 people who developed policy recommendations on national security matters for the prime minister and for the cabinet. Um, after that, I came to the U.S. Uh, I've been working closely and teaching uh, Homeland Security officials uh, for the last 18 years. Uh, and I've been here at Sam Houston for the last seven years chairing the Department of Security Studies. We offer a number of programs, undergraduate and graduate, including certificates and degrees that focus on Homeland Security Studies. So I think it's important to point out that if you if people don't like uh, my how I've done my job here, it's really Nadav's fault. Uh, because when I was a student at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security, he was my professor. So I do believe you gave me A's in the classes that I took from a class or classes. I don't remember now. I'm, I'm sure that was the case. I'm sure, cer- sure, certain of it. And then I would, uh, from that experience, I had the opportunity to start doing some teaching online. Uh, and the Dovs stood up the Homeland Security Program at Colorado Technical University, CTU, and I convinced him to give me a shot to teach for him there, which I did. And then he came over to be the um, uh, chair of security studies here. And uh, I guess I did OK, or you just desperately needed people. So um, then I started teaching for him. And then when the opportunity came up to uh, lead and launch the institute, once again, the Dov is in my corner. Uh, and, uh, so you can blame him if you don't like how things are going, but, uh, for both of, uh, both of you in the room with me, you have both been mentors to me and I do appreciate, uh, how you've supported me and, and you've both supported the Institute. And so with that said, about eight months ago, eight, nine months ago now, uh, the two of them were in my office and we were having a conversation about where do we take IHS to the next level? And the uh, this idea of a I don't think we called it a thought leaders conference then. But, Scott, what what was going through your head when we were how did this all happen? So one of the things that was attractive to me and motivated me to take retirement when I did from the private sector was that this Institute for Homeland Security at Sam Houston State University was focused upon critical infrastructure protection. And having spent the last 25 years in the private sector, there was nobody for us to turn to to provide applied research, training, or education programs. Most of the programs were really focused upon government support, and rightfully so. So when we were having this conversation, what was going through my mind was that it would be great as sort of an announcement that we are here now and that we are uh, potentially impactful to corporate uh, private sector, of putting together a program that was dealing with a risk that the corporate private sector really wasn't prepared for. And when I sort of searched my experience in the private sector, I recognized that 
There was nothing in the way of planning as it relates to gray war activities involving geopolitical uh, tensions with near-peer adversaries. And I came out of industries that were heavily globalized and were very vulnerable and very susceptible to these types of, of issues. So that sort of jumped into my mind as the that would be something that was not only timely, but was very actionable and very germane to the operations of the corporations. So Nadav, what, what were your thoughts? Because you, the two of you then, I, I essentially good leaders get out of the way and let their people, let the people they work with do their thing. And since both of you were together, I'm like, Okay, you guys do it. And what was your perspective on that? I think maybe um, to just say a few words for the listeners on what a gray war is, just so they understand the context of that. Um, what we're really talking about is, uh, is a situation. I mean, there have always been situations during war where there have been activities that have been below the threshold of actual war, having involved battlefield fighting. Um, that option of doing all kinds of other things outside of sort of traditional war has grown because of technology. So what we have today are scenarios where countries, whether they're near peer adversaries or peer adversaries like China and Russia or um, other countries like uh, that have capabilities like Iran and North Korea, for example, um, they have the ability to do things to disrupt uh, our lives here in the U.S. and with respect to our troops overseas that um, that you know couldn't be done in the past. For example, uh, trying to meddle with our election uh, election system here in the United States, uh, having an impact on our various critical infrastructures, trying to disrupt whether it's cyber attacks, whether it's attempts to attack shipping to disrupt supply chains. Um, so there are a whole raft of different kinds, uh, whether it's misinformation and disinformation that's provided. There are a whole range of different things that fall within that scenario of gray war. So they're not actual open war, but there are, there are things that could cause a lot of damage that are below that threshold and have provide the country that's doing them with a level of plausible deniability where they can say it's not really us. And what we're seeing now around the world is this scenario playing out. Uh, certainly with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, there's a heightened risk that the Russians, because of our support of the Ukrainians, will try to disrupt things here in the U.S. using gray war tactics. And also with respect to China. So certainly in a scenario, and this was kind of what Scott and I were thinking of initially, if the Chinese do invade Taiwan or do take some very, very extreme measure towards Taiwan, and they've been promising to do so, and it's part of their military doctrine, um, that's going to involve a U.S. response of some kind. Whether it'll involve us actually getting in a shooting war with the Chinese, I don't know. But it'll certainly involve a very strong U.S. response. And so the Chinese have lots of opportunities to penetrate our systems here, including our critical infrastructure systems, and cause a lot of damage to us. Yeah. So uh, as I was headed into the uh, the conference earlier this week, uh, I, I was thinking just that, like I had in my mind, what if we find ourselves in a conflict that is spurred on by some other action and then uh, our, our nation, you know, kind of has a reciprocal action. But I, it was surprising to me to hear in in the conversation throughout the day, this idea that we're already there. It's not a what if something triggers a, a gray work kind of scenario. But uh, as you were describing some of the cyber attacks, the the idea that you know we're we're already present in this. So uh, you know maybe uh, talk about you know companies that um, you know the the size or the exposure of the company. Scott, you said you know a lot of the um, in, in corporations that you had background with were uh, multinational, international. Um, it, is that where the risk is or um, is it more ubiquitous than that? So, so it's actually more ubiquitous because what, what we're not talking about is just a risk to the companies. 
what what we're trying to deal with here and the whole conference topic was the integration of the risk into a consequence that goes beyond just the individual companies. And that the companies themselves, because they are critical infrastructure, are providing services or products or some key component that's part of society. So one of the things that the Chinese have been talking about within various literature is the ability to influence U.S. society by disrupting the quality of life. So things like disrupting the ability of the food supply to be transported into grocery stores or into freezers and get onto your plate in the United States. If you disrupt that and and interrupt the food supply, the consequence that that would have within society in general and society then turning to the government, meaning our government, and saying, we don't really support your actions towards China or towards whatever geopolitical uh, issue is taking place because it's influencing us. And so that's really the consequence of this. And you are right in your initial statement of this has been going on for quite some time, but it's been going on primarily in the cyber world. And what we're seeing is that with the growth of artificial intelligence uh, uh, focused disinformation and misinformation and psychological operations, you've got the ability to take this to a whole new level. You can interrupt labor. You can you can interrupt uh, the the leadership and the and the quality of a product within a company through those mechanisms. So it's a little more comprehensive than we had originally envisioned. So I want to jump in for a minute because you just said something uh, is that that if we were in some type of conflict and people couldn't get food and the food came from the people that were the 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 country that were in a having a disagreement with a beef with uh, they, that it's the citizenry, the people who live there say, Hey, knock that off. I, I want my, I want my, my goods and services. So, so that's certainly a component of it, but the food doesn't necessarily, or even the product doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be related to the company we are having a confrontation with. It's the critical infrastructure's inability to provide food writ large because of something that that country has done to our ability to pr- provide that food. Uh, any thoughts there? Another aspect of this is, and this is not new in warfare. I mean, the cyber thing, of course, is new. We, you know, we, have, we haven't had computer networks and, and, and this kind of vulnerability around for that long. But certainly the idea of disrupting the enemy's ability to wage war and to function during warfare is a fund- fundamental tenet of warfare. It's, called grand, it's part of what's called grand strategy in warfare. Um, we certainly did this in World War II by bombing the Germans and the Japanese, for example, and hitting their industries and hitting their rail lines and so on and so forth. So um, it's, it's, it's a tried and true tactic, and there's no reason to assume that uh, it wouldn't be done by a country that was, that was in a direct conflict with us during, during the period of conflict. The other thing I want to mention also is when we talk about cyber threats, it's not all about somebody sitting in uh, Moscow or in Beijing and, um, and, and, or in Shanghai or somewhere else and planning attacks on the U.S. and executing them through, uh, through the Internet. Um, we're also talking in many, many cases, what you need to do to get into a, a system, whether it's in a, a company that might be vulnerable or in a governmental agency, is get somebody in there to get the passwords to get access. Um, and so that's part of the effort here is to make sure that people are placed in the right strategically located places in companies and in agencies where they can then, you know, hit the button, provide that information to the outside attackers and, and make us more vulnerable. Now, I know that um, 
I'm 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 taking this down the rabbit trail. I'll come back to Grant. You're like, no, I know I I teed Grant up and said, hey, you asked the first series of questions. Now it's already removed from you. Um, okay, Scott. One of your areas of focus is merging physical security and cybersecurity, and maybe you just could comment about what's going on there because this plays into what what you just described getting somebody what nadav said is getting someone in a building versus with the passwords with getting cyber access what's that disconnect between those two verticals of of security so the best way to answer that i think is to follow up on what nadav was talking about and it's one of the reasons why when we looked at putting together the audience for the conference we looked specifically at companies that were critical infrastructure providers but were global because the, the vulnerability at this point is exactly what Nadav said. So think this through from the perspective of this example. of I'm a chemical company that's making a, making a key product for food packaging that you can then transport into grocery stores and so on. But your plant that produces that is in Guatemala. Guatemala is a much more vulnerable location for me to infiltrate and to get that access, the physical access that you're talking about, Mike, that I'm now inside an authorized perspective and I'm on that company's network. And so now I can provide all kinds of havoc inside that company legitimately from inside of Guatemala or wherever it is that I have penetrated it. And again, that is a tactic that is being used by near-peer adversaries of implanting sleeper agents, as the media calls them, that are there awaiting to be activated during a non-kinetic gray war. All right. Did you have another topic, <laughs> Grant? Kicking, well, kicking it over to Grant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mean, kind of related to that, it, one, of, one of the things that really stood out to me um, that, that we heard in our talk is that larger capabilities are getting into the hands of smaller and smaller organizations. I think that just goes right in line with uh, what we're saying about cybersecurity um, in particular. But, um, you know, there's there's other other threats, um, I, I guess that are out there. And, you know, I, the, uh, the message that, that I'm hearing there is, is, you know, basically that, uh, the, the threats ubiquitous, you know, it's, it's coming from all over the place and, uh, who should be, um, sensitive to this and, and, and aware and watching out for it. I think the answer is everyone, right? So, um, that, that was, that was, um, one of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, was coming out to, to me from, <clears throat> from the, uh, conference. So how do you get, what's your response to that as you've listened to him kind of give his perspective on that to either Nadav or Scott? Well, I, I would say the, um, uh, the two greatest vulnerabilities in that context, because you, you're absolutely right. The, the capabilities, whether they're military capabilities, and we're seeing that in the Middle East now, or whether that's, um, uh, other types of capabilities, cyber and others, um, we're seeing, uh, uh the, the, you, know, uh, you, you might call the democratization of, of, of power, uh, in the sense, um, that, uh, smaller and smaller actors with, uh, um, you know, are able to compete with nation states. That's something we haven't really seen in the past. In the old days, the knights had the swords and the peasants had, had, you know, um, uh, pitchforks because they couldn't afford the swords. Now things are very, very different. And so, um, uh, in that context, I think for critical infrastructure in the United States, in Texas and the United States more broadly, um, I think the two vulnerabilities are primarily in the cyber area to some degree, certainly with um, weaker parties, there's going to be less capability than the near peer actors. Um, but there's, there, there will be some, and that certainly can hit medium and small businesses that simply aren't prepared. Uh, 
and can't even deal with a fairly low-level hacker on the other side in a, in a rogue state or in an organ, a terrorist organization, for example. And the other vulnerability is supply chain, uh, because, you know, with the uh, uh, widespread availability of missiles of small boats that can be loaded with explosives with a suicide bomber on them, they crash into uh, into shipping. Um, this can create a serious level of vulnerability in terms of companies that are dependent on international supply chains and shipping to bring their products to uh, uh, to where they need to uh, produce produce things. Scott. So just as a as a follow up to to that, the. the in answer to your direct question, Grant, is it in today's environment, to, to Nadab's point, the smallest entity is actually potentially a near peer. And although the conference was focused upon geopolitical near peer adversaries, we also mentioned repeatedly, uh, and one of the, the key speakers mentioned uh, multiple times, that Lithuania or Liechtenstein could be a near peer as it relates to a technological capability that meets or exceeds something that we are doing. And so this isn't just about geopolitics. It's also about economic warfare and commercial warfare, but it also is about the movement of these tactics and these techniques into the international criminal community which it's moving very rapidly into that space. And we're going to see that as a criminal enterprise as well to where it's not a sort of ham handed ransomware. Instead, it is a disinformation and misinformation campaign somewhere to create labor unrest at a targeted plant and that that plant then is going to go down and that impact on the supply chain is going to affect pricing. It's going to affect stability. And that from a criminal perspective could be exploited for any number of ways. So it's a multidimensional threat that goes beyond just geopolitics. One of the conference participants, and I think, um, you know, to follow up on what Scott has just said, um, used an interesting term, which I think is really a good analogy for what we're seeing. So we're seeing criminal organizations that are motivated. I mean, the, generally the definition of a criminal organization is it's motivated by profit. It's motivated by money. And that's what it's really driving for. But we're seeing all sorts of different gradations of that. We're seeing traditional criminal organizations that really are just about money. We're seeing others that are about money, but also have other objectives that are nationalist objectives. We've seen that certainly with Russian hackers. Some of them are affiliated to some degree with the government. Some of them aren't. Some of them are in the government, but still making money on the side. There's all sorts of, there's a whole spectrum of this kind of activity going on. And one of the conference participants uh, uh, referred to this as modern day privateers. And I think that's a really, really good analogy. So, you know, in, in the uh, 17th, 18th centuries, you had privateers who were basically pirates. Um, they were sometimes contracted by governments like the British government uh, or the English government at the time to, uh, to, to work and carry out missions for the government. And sometimes they operated as independent contractors and just, you know, as criminals and just tried to, uh, to, to, to carry out those activities. So th that's almost how we can think of a lot of these different hackers is they're kind of modern day privateers. Sometimes they're just in it for the money. Sometimes they're doing it uh, in support of a government. Um, it, it's the whole spectrum of things. But just as a, as a follow-up to that, the issue of preparedness, though, is the impact to corporate critical infrastructure, whether you're a big multinational company or whether you're a small, is the same. And so you have to be prepared for this at all of these dimensions. Otherwise, this is one of those things that is truly an existential threat to these companies. Is it When you look at, for example, ransomware, most companies – uh, they, they manage that threat through insurance. 
So, all right, cost you $5 million or $10 million. They've got insurance to cover that. They, that doesn't cover the reputation risk, but that's usually manageable. This is potentially the ability to put your brand out of business and put you out of business. So it really is an existential threat, whether it's on the criminal side or whether it's on the, the nation state or geopolitical side. So we have a caller on line three. No, actually, it's Marcus. He's our producer. He's right here. He's, I call him the man on the street. So, Marcus, I've been watching you scribble notes down. What, what's your reaction? I mean, we've talked about, we've covered 20 minutes now of dialogue. And what, what, what do you want to ask these guys? Uh, as the guy who, I, I, okay, now I've said you're the guy who knows nothing, but you did share with us uh, that you did actually grow up internationally. So, you do have some perspective on this. So, you're the man on the street. What do you want to ask? I have to lower this. Here. I have to Somebody's lower. Somebody's a little shorter than Somebody me. Somebody is a lot shorter. So, one thing that that has really struck me is, you know, I teach the media literacy class here at SAM, which is one of the biggest classes in the department. I'm hoping expand it, make it one of the biggest in the university. When it comes to disinformation, chaos is an objective. You know, chaos is a goal in itself. If if it's a you know a hostile nation or a near peer nation or even a you know a corporate on corporate issues. If you flood the zone and you cause enough chaos, that in itself, it doesn't even matter what the chaos is about. It just matters. Are they distracted? You know, and on a nation state level, you know, if, if you know, and this isn't even anything new. We did this in Guatemala. We did this in Iran back in the 50s. Just go over there, you know, pay some people off, get them to protest in the streets and cause some chaos. It's really intriguing to me how it's more or less the same thing. It's just digitized and and chaos is an objective is a whole lot simpler to achieve than anything practical or tangible. I, feel like. I just don't know how to combat that, you know, because, you know, from a media literacy education perspective, don't believe everything you read online. It should be something really simple, but it's something you have to learn over and over and over again. And when it comes to AI and other technologies, the technology, the potential, just like malware, the potential to cause chaos is always going to be a step or two ahead of the protections against that malware and that chaos. And so I don't you know, how do you how do you keep up with that? How do you how do you preserve, you know, the integrity of the infrastructure on a national level or on a corporate level, knowing that they're always going to be a couple of steps ahead? So actually, we talked about this at the conference uh, a little bit towards the end yesterday. We actually had some uh, subject matter expert panels that talk about solutions within the corporate world. And then we talked about what are the obstacles to implementing those solutions. And, and one of the things that was discussed was exactly what you're talking about. Is it we need a process by which we can evaluate disinformation and misinformation to be able to put some level of credibility on it in one form or fashion. That doesn't really exist out there today. Everybody is left to their own devices to do that. Now, the government has actually started a process that's resident within the State Department right now for analyzing international media and international social media and trying to quantify what's disinformation and what isn't. It's not really working all that well. And I would offer that the problem with it, its biggest problem is there's no trust with the government operations. We're so divided, so partisan and whatnot, that as long as it's resident there, it's going to have a difficult time being effective. And one of the things that we talked about at the conference was, 
coming up with a model to where you've got an honest broker. And the model that we were referring to was Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon University's Cyber Cert which is that honest broker that deals with cyber intelligence issues and evaluating and analyzing them and their capabilities and providing that to both industry and the government on a unbiased, nonpartisan way. Is that the model that we should be looking at? Well, potentially, if I think it needs more research and more, more thought. I would say also that, um, you know, and uh, the potential for this is just getting worse. I mean, with deep fake technology, for example, um, you know, and, 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 and so to some degree, we have to accept that part of this is this is part of life and we're going to have situations like this. You can't combat this 100 percent. However, there are examples overseas. I'm thinking of Estonia and Finland in particular, where they have educational programs at the high school level for the high school students. To, um, to learn about how to evaluate information that they're getting in ways that make it, you know, make it a little bit more credible, triangulate information, look at the source of the information. Um, and, and, and I think that if, if fundamentally we want to address this problem, and I don't, again, I don't think we can solve it, but we may, maybe de decrease the problem. Uh, I think we can, we need to do that through education. And I think we need to do that at the, at the, um, the level of high school, along with teaching people about democratic principles and civics. So one of the, um, as, as we're talking about this, uh, an, uh, an honest broker and, and the government's involvement, um, even, even among companies, they're competitive with one another. How do we get them to um, trust and share information to each other and, and also getting along between private industry and, and government? Did you hear that? Just open a can of worms. worms. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something else, but I don't, I don't think we could bleep things, right? Uh, okay. Okay. Well, let's, let's just keep it uh, G to the extent. So uh, this is going to be our hot button topic. You could probably have ver reverberated my voice at oh, that point, oh. but all right. Uh, you threw the gauntlet down there, Grant, to both our guests. Who doesn't want to work with who? <laughs> Or who wants to work with who? How do we get there? I don't know. You're the experts. Take it away. And Scott's ready. <laughs> Scott? <laughs> so so I have a little different point of view on this. And again, it's based upon 25 years of experience. There is way more cooperation than you would think amongst companies within industries, particularly at the CSO, the CISO, the chief risk officer perspective. Uh, those companies talk to one another because there's an understanding that we have the same risks. We have the same potential bad outcomes and that I'm not going to use my access to you and my access to insider information from your side and your good ideas in a way that is going to harm you or put you out of business. So the cooperation is surprisingly comprehensive at the industry level. And you see that with a very good example was the Retail Industry Leaders Association, which is designed for all big retailers. They get together and bear their souls and talk about what are the loss prevention issues that are affecting all of us and what can we do to address that. So I don't think within industry the problem exists of, of a lack of sharing. It's at another level. It's at another dimension because there is a long history of that, those organizations being harmed by passing information to the other, the other entity. And I'm speaking about the government and industry, and that's really the driver behind that. 
I would also add that um, uh, you're talking about trust relationships, and trust relationships are not made through signing a document, some sort of a memorandum of understanding, some sort of an agreement. Uh, Trust relationships are made between human beings. And, um, and therefore, whether it's trust across different companies and industry in a given sector, whether it's trust between industry and government, or whether it's trust across government, because government, too, is divided into multiple agencies at state, local, and federal levels. So um, to, to achieve all of that, everyone always says, well, it's about the personal relationships that developed and the ability to then have trust in, in your partner on the other side. Um, I, I, you know, and then, of course, that goes away when people retire. So uh, I think the only solution to that is not more documents with more agreements. I mean, you know, that's an infrastructure, but you need to have those relationships. And so um, it's about every manager, whether they're in, uh, you know, in, in the industry level or whether they're a government official or some kind, bringing along their sidekick, bringing along their apprentice who's going to eventually replace them and helping that person develop those relationships as well so that you can kind of think of this as a handoff. And when that person retires, there's already a solid relationship in place for the successor. That. I was just going to say that's that's actually a brilliant strategy is the the handoff strategy to maintain that relationship because that is truly what is the driver behind this is that if you don't have that trusted uh, long-term relationship with the other organization, you're not going to pass on anything of any importance. So what's, you know, we didn't, we didn't really talk about this. We skirted the issue a little bit, but participating with government. Private industry participating with government. I'm going to, I'll lead with uh, an anecdote. We're in the process of uh, developing an app for uh, first responders to map out uh, uh, stores of chemicals throughout the greater Houston area. This was something that was asked for by the Harris County Fire Marshal's office. They're a partner with us on the project. And their position was, look, we it's important for us to know where dangerous chemicals are. And the problem is, is that you have the scientists who at night when he's home, he's trying to develop the next cool chemical. And so he's got a stash of what would be controlled and regulated chemicals in his garage. And uh, there's requirements for that. We kind of want to know. And again, this is from the fire marshal's office. We want to know where they are so that if a massive event happens, a weather event happens, people aren't getting hurt because we're aware of them. But of course, the flip side to that is that if you tell us the risk to the person is they're going to get in trouble, uh, either civilly or criminally. So is is it possible to do a how do you how do you achieve that? I don't know if that's possible. But uh, again, it's that that's what. From a government standpoint, they wrestle with how do we get people to be willing to come to us with their situation, uh, circumstances, and knowing that, look, we're going to let you do your thing, but we're not going to come after you for it. I, I'm kind of setting this up for you, Scott, to start if you want to. It's up to you. Happy to do so. It's it's an issue that, that uh, very much faced for 25 years and did not come up with a, with a good solution. And it boils down to, in essence, what we were talking about before is a trust component. And, and, and the government has a whole different set of metrics for success for their employees. And my success and my profitability and my company's success isn't part of that structure. They get no benefit from that. So you have to go into it understanding that and that that's a component of everybody's personal human behavior. What am I going to be able to get out of something that benefits me? And and there is 
instance after instance of much like what you described, Mike, to where a company decides I'm going to pass on some information to the government and that comes back to bite them, either because the regulation just recently changed or the regulation changes at some point in the near future and you're now in violation or in some cases because you were ignorant of the regulation and that you violated it. And then the comp- the, the government, which is very much a uh, reactionary type metric of convictions or regulatory violations or fines, punishments, that's what people get promoted for. Uh, and so when they find that they have an opportunity there to capitalize on something, some people within government will do that. Uh, and I'm not damning because I came out of the government for 22 years, but I think it is important to understand that we haven't really created a mutual advantageous relationship between government and industry for critical infrastructure operations, which if you step back and think about it for a second, we're a little bit unique in that roughly 85% of critical infrastructure is owned, operated, and managed by corporations, that's a little different than you find in many places around the world. And so you've got this sort of animosity, this this tension between government and industry, and we need to, to, to take down that barrier and be able to create a mechanism by which the two are operating together. Because there's certainly some things the government really does well that would be very helpful to private industry if we could incorporate that capability and vice versa. Some things, excuse me, corporations are doing that would be mutually beneficial to the government. I want to, I'm going to turn it over to you in just a sec, but I just want to throw this out. So I think one solution is that there needs to be a shift of mindset in government, whether it be from law enforcement to all the way up to the office of the president. And that is we should be focusing in government to business, seeking compliance, not conviction. And what I mean by that is, uh, I was a police officer for 26 years. One of my responsibilities was downtown Santa Barbara, California in the nightlife, which has all kinds of bars and nightclubs and things. And our approach was, hey, look, we want you as a business to make as much money as you possibly can. And we would tell business owners this, bar owners this, look, we're not here to shut you down for an alcohol beverage control violation. We're here to help you and help your staff have a safe environment where you can generate the sales tax, where you can generate the transient occupancy tax for people who want to come to Santa Barbara and pay the hotel tax for them to say, we want you to be successful. And unfortunately that's not a mindset that is within government. And we need, I don't understand why we don't have that because they're the ones who pay literally they do pay our salaries. And I've heard that a few times. So, so just as a follow-up to that, and then I'll let Nadav jump in, because you're actually on to the issue in that we don't have a mutual partnership to go forward and do good, as you, as you call it, Mike, uh, b- because government doesn't really – excuse me. Does, government doesn't really care, or I should say private industry doesn't really care about finding bad guys. They're focused upon preventing risks impacting their business, whereas government is looking at when we have a business email compromise, for example, and the fraud that comes from that, they'll be Johnny on the spot to try to go find who did it and make an arrest because that's what their metric is. But uh, private sector is saying, look, the moment this happened, 
you, chief security officer or chief information security officer, you failed. And you're going to have to be responsible for this in the postmortem. And I can tell you more than a few of my colleagues lost their jobs as a result of an event that occurred uh, because that was the performance metric that they're judged by. Companies aren't interested in finding the bad guys. They're interested in protecting themselves. We don't have that synergy of government understanding that difference and how do we get together in a way that is effective and efficient in achieving that outcome. Over to you, Nadav. I would also say in response both to you, Mike and, and Scott, um, that it, it appears to be dawning on government that, uh, in fact, it needs to operate a little bit differently if it wants to get buy-in from the private sector. One example of this is something that was raised in the conference, and I won't mention agencies or names because uh, that was under Chatham House rules. But um, it, uh, the fact that there are agencies in the federal government today that are willing to take data from companies and put them in secure places that they don't, ha- they themselves don't have access to. In other words, they can't use them for purposes of investigation and prosecution or uh, can't pass them on to regulatory authorities. So there is an understanding, at least at some level, in some aspects, some parts of government, that, uh, that, that they'll need to change the way they operate if they really do want to get the, the buy-in from industry. Grant, you've, uh, I, I've had you in the corner. Nobody puts baby in the corner. <laughs> Any comments, questions, I, thoughts? I, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one, one of the things that uh, we heard at the conference that I uh, really appreciated is that planning is crucial and also worthless. Um, but it's absolutely crucial in the, in the respect that it, um, it shows what possible reactions and outcomes might be, that it identifies where weaknesses are. And, you know, that's what I'm, um, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing about, um, Scott, to, to your point that industry may cooperate more than, um, than we realize because they share the same risks. And I, and I think that's just it. It's, um, you know, the, the planning is crucial. Um, but you know, also the, the information sharing is, uh, important, uh, you know, at, at another point in the, in the conference, um, it was, um, we, we were talking about, will, will we survive, um, in, in a kind of attack, whether that's lawfare, social media warfare, um, cybersecurity warfare or whatever. And, you know, one of the, one of the things, uh, that, that we talked about is, are we prepared for what we haven't anticipated. And, and to me, it seems like a a really good way to anticipate more things is, uh, is, is this sharing of information, this, um, relationship building that, that that seems to be a key that keeps coming up. So what's interesting is we're kind of having this thought dialogue here and and talking and, and what I heard coming out of this was, uh, and then I'm going to, what I'm going to do is we're kind of getting to the end of our time. So I'm going to ask you guys to, um, we, we've, we've gone down a path here from talking about the Thought Leaders Conference, this geopolitical engagement, then we've talked about risk, we've talked about companies uh, tied to government. So I'm going to ask you guys kind of tie this all up in terms of what did you see coming out of this conference and what's next for us for IHS. But I do want to say this is that two words, risk and relationships, managing risk and building relationships. And doing that over generations of employees. 
that we we need to be investing, and this is when we talk about what our goal is for IHS, we want to invest in the next generation of leaders, the next generation of business people. We've talked about this. We've got a security studies department. We need to shift the mindset of students away. I'm not saying away from, but government service to parallel private industry service in the security profession within private industry. So with that, let me, I'm going to ask for the kind of the final thoughts here on what were your, we've talked through all of this. How did it all come together for both of you? And what would you like to see come out of this as next steps? And before I I do that, I do want to give a shout out to the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Association. They very graciously supported us and made this conference possible. So I want to extend my thanks to that organization. And uh, one of the important things for us is to continue to uh, identify partners in industry who want to work with us. Uh, I, I guess I'm just setting it up for you to talk about uh, surf here in a moment. But what's our with that said, Scott, I'm going to start with you as we came through this. What what did you, what were your takeaways and what where are we going from here? Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> Not that no, I put you no on the spot. There. No, no, no. Don't blow it. <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, I, I think this was a very successful conference because we we successfully transmitted the risk, an emerging risk that most corporations really hadn't thought about in the context of a strategic impact of that company going forward from a geopolitical point of view. Uh, did we solve the problem? No, we, we didn't. We just really got the discussion going. But what we did tell them was, to your point, Mike, is that we within Sam Houston State are creating a critical infrastructure research forum, which we're conveniently calling SURF because it's a great acronym. Uh, Bang 10. Sorry. And the whole idea behind this is to have SURF become a research tool and a research component focused upon critical infrastructure risk issues that we then can provide research answers to help critical infrastructure be more effective in their operations of security management and crisis management and geopolitical management going forward. Because these issues exist not just in this dimension of near-peer critical infrastructure gray war risk, it also occurs in the traditional risk world. But as it relates to what we learned yesterday is that we've still got a lot of work to do to your point of helping both sides continue to evolve, whether it's the private sector or the government. But in the meantime, the private sector has to take on more responsibility to be more effective in managing these risks on their own. Because we're going to have to drag the government along. And to Nadav's point earlier, they're making progress moving in the right direction, but it's slow. Uh, And having been one of the founding executives of DHS, I can tell you that they're not far along from where we were when we started them 21 years ago. Uh, And so I think it's important for us to be able to provide that mechanism of consolidating knowledge, consolidating risk, consolidating an understanding of what needs to be done and coming up with the data scientific research-focused data that can be used by corporate critical infrastructure to manage the risk in their own areas that they can control and and have responsibility for. So, Nadav, I'll set you up as well and give you a minute to collect your thoughts. Um, 
what were your takeaways? What were your big ideas that came out of this? And from the perspective of an academician, where do you want to go with this? I think, first of all, the conference was extremely validating that what we're doing at the Institute for Homeland Security at Sam Houston State is, 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 is on target and, and, full, and fills a need, a very critical need, I think, within industry. And I think the SURF initiative will be a major part of that as well. I think of our institute as being placed, and again, I think the conference validated this, as kind of the in the middle of three of a wheel with three spokes. And one of those is government, one is industry, and one is academia. And we're kind of at the center of that. And that's kind of the intention of the Institute in the first place, because government does what, it's, what, it, what it does. And we've talked about this. Scott mentioned quite a few things in this context. Uh, industry has its own set of uh, priorities and, and interests. And academia does too. Academia is another partner, but it's not necessarily naturally something that will be relevant to industry and government or you know, somewhere that lies between industry and government. Academia has its own priorities, its own interests. Um, and its own projects. And most academics are interested in furthering their own research agenda, and rightly so, because that's how they get evaluated and how they get promoted. What we're trying to do, though, is make sure that the research that is done and the education that is carried out is relevant to industry and to some degree also will be relevant to government as well. So I really think of our role as being in the center of all of this activity. And uh, the conference participants mentioned this quite a few times. They said, you know, re really, there is nobody to go to. Uh, in this space, nobody to go to that will be understand the needs of industry and try to help solve industry's problems, um, but isn't strictly academic where it would have a different set of priorities. And what we're really trying to do is bridge the gap between all three areas. So, gentlemen, I want to thank you for participating today. We went a little bit longer than we normally would, but that's fine. There were some I really enjoyed the dialogue and the discussion that we had. I think uh, if you visit our website, IHSonline.org, we will have some information on the uh, Critical Infrastructure Research Forum that will be uh, posted on our website. If you're in industry and you would like to be a partner with us, a, 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 what do we call it, a founding partner? A, a steering committee member. Steering committee member, uh, early adopter, I think right. is another uh, term that we use. Please reach out to us. Uh, the contact information is there. And uh, I want to thank you guys. Thank everyone and our listeners. And we've gotten some good feedback from folks. If you have topics that you want to hear from our subject matter experts, please shoot a message to us. And we're happy to bring those folks into the studio. And once again, we have now wrapped up another episode of Structurally Sound. We're here at the Institute for Homeland Security. We are disruptive. But helpful. All right. I hope you all have a great day today. Thanks very much. Structurally Sound is the podcast for the Institute for Homeland Security at Sam Houston State University. It is supported by the College of Criminal Justice and the Mass Communication Department. Our hosts are Michael Asplund, Grant Threet, and Marcus Funk, who also produces and edits the show. Our music was written by Kevin Clifton, and artwork was created by the Idea Factory, part of the Department of Art at Sam Houston State. Additional support comes from Shannon Lane, Rose Cater, Charles Henson's and enthusiastic bearcats everywhere.